1: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukaloo. My name is Anthony, and I don't mind saying that I think this may be my favorite episode of Electric Bukaloo coming up. It's got everything that I like about doing this project. I really like narrowing the scope and really looking at the minutia of the text at times, and then widening the scope to see big picture stuff, I like bringing in meta-conversations from time to time. This episode includes Jan Doolittle-Wilson. She's one of my favorite conversation partners, just to narrow in on particular details. Jan is a expert on gender studies and disability studies, and she teaches classes on Game of Thrones at the University of Tulsa. You get to hear Steve's shock and awe over the Purple Wedding. It totally took him by surprise, and I got to experience that episode a new through his eyes, which is always fun. And I do a little bit of meta conversation. So without further ado, here is Jan Doolittle Wilson. This is quite an action packed and bloody chapter.
2: <laughs> it is. It is. It's it's actually one of my favorites. When you told me this is the one we would be discussing, I was excited.
1: Oh, okay, that's good. I, I'm so glad to, uh, that you said that. So why? Why is it among your favorites?
2: <laughs> it's an overlooked but incredibly important section, I think, in Tyrion's story arc. And, you know, revisiting this, it reminded me of how this chapter really illustrates all of the kind of qualities and strategies and forms of agency that Tyrion has really spent a lifetime honing you know just out of sheer necessity mm-hmm. but also we're starting to see the beginning of something else here as well and so you kind of have this accumulation of what we're starting to learn about Tyrion, mm-hmm. and how he has been able to survive in a world that is incredibly cruel and discriminatory and has you know cast him out his entire life yeah. but we also see The privileges that he has and how he is able to wield them to obviously tremendous effect, not only to survive, but to show agency. But then we also start to see another side of Tyrion, which is he's actually quite brave and he's actually extremely resourceful in a battle situation, which you wouldn't initially think he would be. And that will be a very prominent theme for Tyrion going forward. So it's just this beautiful, I think, kind of combination of what we're learning, what we've seen, what he's done in the past, but also it's it's a lot of looking forward as well. It's just a really beautiful chapter in so many ways. Hmm. Hmm. And it hints at Tyrion's dark side as well. You know, as the books go on, Tyrion gets darker and darker and yeah. darker. Yeah. And you see, you know, you see some of that here.
1: I think that you could read Tyrion up until this point as something of a survivor. Yes. And I mean that in a couple ways. First off, he mentions at one point comparing the Westerosi culture to Dothraki culture.
2: Yeah. That
1: if he had been born in a different part of the world to a different tribe, he might have not survived his infancy. Right. So he's he's a survivor in that way. But for the most part, in most of his life, and we imagine he, you know, he's in his early 30s or something like that. He's really a sort of a social survivor. Yes. Like he's learned to swim. He's like a tiny little, no pun intended, he's a tiny little fish swimming in sort of this social ocean of sharks. Yes. And somehow he's been able to uh, navigate the waters and stay alive long enough and, and do well enough, socially speaking. Right. But- At this point, I don't think he's ever experienced anything like this in his life, where he actually, (laughs) he's actually, like a lot of his privileges are stripped pretty bare. Yeah. He still has his wit. He still has his social education. But he's never been asked to survive like this
2: before. Exactly. And so that's, again, where we see him employing the strategies that have always worked for him. And some do. You, yeah. know, you can definitely see in this chapter, the things that have always worked continue to work to a certain extent, but you're right, Anthony, he's in a very, very different environment now. And so some of what has worked before simply doesn't work now. And so he now has to come up with new strategies right. and new tactics and and new forms that involve things he's never really had to employ before. And part of that is just new forms of cleverness right new forms of humor but it's also a new kind of physical strategy and you know even for somebody with all of tyrion's privileges and advantages which we can talk about the fact is that you know this world is extremely hostile to anyone living in it you know it's yeah. it's not a forgiving environment and so even somebody like tyrion who was born to wealth and privilege and nobility you know just existing in this world has a series of challenges that are really accentuated i think given the different environments that he's in and that that people in general are in and you really see that in this chapter so you know i think your your point is very valid and that's part of the reason i love the chapter because you're right we now see him in this completely new environment where he does have to come up with new strategy survivals yeah
1: his wit and I guess social education is being tested tested in a mm-hmm. way that it's never been tested before right. Um, and who knows like I don't know if he's ever like i I know that um he probably doesn't have zero martial training. But we do get the sense that, like, that's not really his thing. <laughs> that's, that's not really. That's Jamie's thing. But you know thing. what?
2: What's so beautiful about this, and we can jump to you know, the battle scene, um, is that he is greatly disadvantaged, obviously. You're right. He did have some training. Um, just as a child of nobility, he would have had some training right. at, at arms. Um, and I, there's a section in the book where he refers to um, he had some tumbling training
1: that's right and of
2: course his father you know cuts that off but how (laughs) how um useful (laughs) i think that tumbling training becomes because he is able to use his short stature Mm -hmm. and the fact that nobody expects anything of him physically to huge advantage here you know he comes up from behind he comes up from below nobody kind of sees him coming yeah
1: he's like darting rock to rock
2: (laughs) starting rock to rock. Right. And he becomes like this ninja warrior <laughs> in ways that no one ever could have anticipated. And I think in ways he himself is shocked by uh-huh. um, that, wow, you know, in most settings, my height is a great disadvantage, but in this particular battle, they don't see me coming. Right. And so he's able to employ that in ways that again, allows him to survive and and allows for the survival of others. He saves a couple lives here.
1: Right, right. Let me read the uh, short synopsis of the chapter. Okay. And we can talk more about the battle. Tyrion is bound and on his way to the Eyrie. The ride has been hard on him, made worse by bound hands and a hood over his face. He hits a low point when one of Catelyn's men butchers his horse for meat.
2: Uh, yeah. He
1: reflects back on the night of his capture and admires the wit of and cunning of Catelyn Stark. After a short exchange with Cat about the true nature of Peter Baelish, her little band of misfits is waylaid by a mountain clan. A battle ensues. In the chaos, Tyrion is unbound and given an axe. Several men are struck down, but Tyrion, Cat, Bronn, and a few others survive. For fear of a second wave of the battle, the group presses upward into the Vale Leaving several men unburied on the side of the road. So, uh, Jan Wilson, do you want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos?
2: <laughs> well, I thought it would be interesting to talk about these various strategies because, again, you know, the thing I love about the chapter is you see almost all of them um, being being employed here. And so we could kind of break down, you know, what these strategies are, how Tyrion variously uses them, both in the chapter and, you know, kind of as a whole throughout his arc. Um, Because I think it's so interesting to to first start with this idea of privilege, sure, right? I mean, no one is, you know, completely kind of on the side of privilege. No one's completely on the side of oppression. We all occupy various Mm -hmm. locations within these systems, and I think that you can see, first of all, that Tyrion has always, this is kind of his default setting, right? I'm a Lannister. Mm -hmm. Uh, My father is the most powerful lord in the kingdom. Um, And so you better treat me well. (laughs) Plus, if that fails, I have money. And so, you know, you constantly see him falling back on this, which again has worked pretty well.
1: Kind of looking around at the cell swords and saying, "You know what? My father might reward the man who brings him certain information about my capture." Wink, wink.
2: <laughs> yes, he does. He does. He does it in two ways, right? So, on the one hand, let me try this. Let me try the carrot, sure. right? So he'll say, "You know," in the previous scene where he's at the tavern and he's first abducted by Cat. Oh, my father would be very interested, like you just said, Anthony, he'd be very interested to know uh, any information or perhaps, you know, someone who aids me might be rewarded Mm -hmm. handsomely. When that fails, of course, then he goes to the stick. Well, you know, my father is the most powerful Uh. Lord in the kingdom and a very vengeful person, by the way, uh, will do anything to defend the honor of his house. So, you know, he's coming for me. And so he shifts back and forth between those two kind of positions yeah. constantly uh, throughout the book. And and certainly, you know, you see hints of that in this particular storyline, as well as as the chapter itself. And that, again, has worked pretty well for him. Doesn't work quite so well in this particular chapter. Um, they're a little more influenced by what Kat is telling them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know by her family name and the loyalty that they feel to to her family and uh certainly the reward they're hoping for when they get to the veil so it it's not quite there but he's he's laying the groundwork right he's kind of reeling them yeah, in yeah so
1: he leans on that sort of he he leans on not just his wealth but the reputation of his wealth right yes but in addition yes. to that he's also you know his social education has also given him enough sense to know to tell one of his guardsmen to put down his sword like they're in the inn and um i think it may be jick i forget which one it was but one of his guardsmen unsheaths his sword when there are 12 men (laughs) trying trying to (laughs) and basically he says our gracious host has asked us to put away our swords let's let's go ahead and do that um, out of courtesy yeah. and it, it's his way of saying it, to Catelyn you've got me and I don't want to die <laughs> right <laughs> so, so yes
2: he's smart He he's very pragmatic Right. whereas right? I
1: could see someone like Jon Snow like not <laughs> not quite yes. doing it as delicately as that
2: or somebody like Ned right I mean these are characters who you know at least when we're you know, first introduced and throughout most of the especially for Ned, of course, who doesn't have much of a story arc, poor Ned, but you know, especially for John in the early books, it's, you know, kind of this ride or die mentality. It's this idea of I will die on my honor. And Tyrion's much more pragmatic about it, as is his father. You know, Tywin, how long did he hold back, you know, before sending his troops to King's Landing, um, you know, in the in the battle for the throne? Um, he was waiting to see who would win. That's right. And Tyrion, I think, is exactly the same way. He, he certainly has maybe more nobility than his father in terms of his motivations, but he's extremely practical. And he also gets what I found really interesting in rereading the chapter, he also despite his maybe more noble intentions, he has inherited his family's desire for revenge. (laughs) He can be very vengeful. I love the part where he is memorizing the names of his captors. Yeah,
1: because he's going to have to pay them back.
2: He will pay. It's kind of a hint of of Arya, right? Uh I'm going to say their names every night, Mm -hmm. and that way I'll be sure to reward them. And of course, in this sense, it doesn't mean monetary reward Mm -hmm. it means vengeance which i thought is an early hint at you know what we will see later in the books from Tyrion.
1: right so i want to ask you a question and i mean i'm sure this this could go any number of places but i don't know what your answer will be to this okay i'm going to read this Um, after that things ran together the dawn was full of shouts and screams and heavy with the scent of blood and the world had turned to chaos. Arrows hissed past his ear and clattered off rocks. He saw brawn on horse fighting with the sword in each hand. Tyrion kept on the fringes of the fight, sliding from rock to rock, darting out of the shadows to hew <laughs> at the legs of passing horses. <laughs> All right. Just a quick observation and then to my question. We're almost at the midway of this book. And I don't think we've seen sort of a medieval battle scene yet. Yeah. And so this is sort of Martin finally throwing a little bit of blood and in action into this adventure <laughs> story, right? Yeah.
2: Um,
1: And he's pretty good at it. Yes. Um, So far, this book has been about intrigue and dialogue and characters' motives and, uh, you know... Uh, conflicting contexts and whatnot um and humor at times but we haven't seen martin do this in the book yet right all right so here's my question to you as i read this how much should i care about authorial intent Hmm. you know back when i was in university in the 90s it was sort of hit into my head that that this business about like studying the life of the author and trying to divine the mind of the author is is sort of a fool's errand what we should be doing is sort of exploring the life of the text yeah and you know so it's been a long time since those days (laughs) (laughs) so I'm wondering let's say we're sitting in your classroom you know, and I'm wondering, you know, should I care about the author's intent? What sort of advice would you give me?
2: Can I ask you a question before I answer? Mm-hmm. Why did you select that particular passage as a way of opening mm-hmm. this conversation?
1: Because I think Martin is something of a pacifist, mm. and I think that he has this view of warfare that it is chaos, that it is, it's a, it's foolish
2: yeah yeah
1: now but should that matter you know should it matter to me that this horrific bloody chaos that's beautifully written (laughs) has been beautifully written by someone who has a particular ideological view on violence
2: yeah it's interesting you should ask me this at this particular moment um if i could do a little bit of a It's not a non sequitur, it's more of a segue and then I'll, I'll come back. Uh uh Um, I am getting ready to teach for the fifth time, I believe, um, a course on Harry Potter. Uh Uh-huh, okay. Um, I am heavily involved right now in kind of revamping the course and um, gathering new materials, especially in light of uh, some of the, the new revelations we have about J.K. Rowling. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, I'm sure are aware probably most people listening to this are aware of um, some of the troubling tweets that she sent out and, and some of the uh, opinion pieces that she published last year mm-hmm. um, that were very hurtful and, and offensive to to many people, but particularly those in the transgender community. Right. So without going into a long tangent about that, I am sort of... <sighs> Not struggling, but but kind of deliberating over how to um, use this um, controversy as a way of talking about what you just raised, this idea of authorial intent. How much should the author's intent, the author's um, you know hand on the page matter to us as readers? Can we ever separate the author from the creation? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I have my my own thoughts about this. I'm kind of like you, Anthony, the way I was trained in school was the death of the author perspective, Right, right? That, you know, once something is published, once something is out there, it really doesn't belong to the creator anymore. It belongs to the readers. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of a story like Game of Thrones or Harry Potter or anything that has become so popular, I think one huge reason for that popularity is because readers can make of it what they want. They can build their own interpretations and stories and fantasies or or interpretations in whatever way um, is suitable to their own subject position mm-hmm. uh, to where they are in life, how that changes over the course of your life as a reader. When I first started teaching those books, uh, the first class I taught on Harry Potter was back in 2010. And so the students I was teaching in that generation, they had grown up with Harry Potter. They were the same age as Harry Potter. They went to the midnight yeah. you know, screenings. They They mm-hmm. went to the bookstore to get their books. They went in costume. When the last Harry Potter book came out, I had so many students say to me I felt like my childhood just ended. Right. That this this coming of age moment is just gone. Yeah. It's it's over. But the students I teach now, which is kind of scary to think about, you know, these students were born in the early aughts.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> they were born, I mean, they were babies when Harry Potter was ending. Mm-hmm. And so they have just a very different relationship to it. And they also have a very different relationship to issues of social justice That's right. and diversity and in- inclusivity. And, you know, the way in which they interpret these books is going to be so different than how that earlier generation, you know, from yeah. how that earlier generation. So, that's a big tangent and a a way of saying I tend to fall much more on the side of it's really what the reader brings to it. It's, it's interesting. I'm an historian by heart, Mm -hmm. by training. It's fascinating to look at Martin and his, you know, background and his beliefs and his process of writing the books, where he was, how he feels about, you know, the filmic adaptations. I love that stuff. I love reading that stuff. Mm -hmm. But ultimately why I enjoy these stories why I keep coming back to these stories and revisiting these stories is because of what I bring to them as a reader Mm. and how each time I revisit, you know, just you and I in in preparing for the podcast today, every time I revisit these stories, I see something new Mm -hmm. in them Mm -hmm. and I find new interpretations because I've changed. I'm in a different place in, in my life journey or my education or, you know, how I think about the world or what's happening in the world. Some of the things are the same, but I see such different things every single time. And for me, that's the best part of it. Mm. That's the most important, I think, part of it, as opposed to, well, what did the author mean? What did the author Mm. think? What was the author's intent? That's interesting, but it's not the most interesting thing for me. What do you think? Yeah,
1: no, I'm glad that it's, I'm curious. I didn't think we'd be talking about Harry Potter today, but it's a...
2: I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean <laughs> No, it's
1: it's fantastic. Harry
2: Potter is on my brain right yeah. now.
1: So, uh... my daughter is 17 and she was an early reader. Yeah. And her chi- a lot of her childhood was spent moving place to place because I was an adjunct professor and I would just we we were all over the country. Sure. Um and every time we would move, she would reread Harry Potter. Oh, wow. It was almost like my friends are gone, but I still have Harry and Hermione and Ron, oh, wow. right? So it was like wow. this this bastion of comfort for her. Sure. And it was it was like clockwork. It's like, okay, we've been here 18 <laughs> months, let's move again, you know, that kind of thing. And then yeah. she would jump into those books again. And it hurt. in her childhood, she read through those books seven times. Wow. Um,
2: I should invite her to come speak in my class. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so for her, and she, you know, as a child she doesn't have the benefit of like, you know, a a university english class where we talk about the death of the author. What would that even mean to, you know, sev- <laughs> a seven-year-old, right? Right. Um so it was t- for her with her sort of her generation's progressive sensibilities. I think it was painful for her to realize J.K. Rowling, who was so important to her, is a flawed person. You know, yeah, and yeah. you know that I guess that shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone, like um that people are ideologically different in ways that that are painful to us, right, um right.
2: But and that's part of that process of, you know, discovery and growing up. And I mean, that's a major mm-hmm. theme of Harry Potter, his idols fall. Right. Yeah. You know, like you said, with your daughter, that has meant so much to her and has marked so many stages of her life and has provided solace and comfort at times when she needed that. And are we going to let somebody like Rowling take that away? Yeah. Um And I'm not saying one perspective is wrong or one's better. I'm just saying it's. It's fascinating to kind of step back and, and look at how, you know, different people are responding to yeah.
1: it. Now I will I have a little confession to make here. I know all of the, the good and sound arguments yeah. for the life of the text over and against the intention of the author. Yeah. But I can never turn my brain off. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm never able to not wonder somewhere in the back of my mind. You know what what it what is it like for a pacifist to write a passage like this? Yeah. So anyway, I guess the I guess the issue for me is there's part of me that can't stop wondering about those things, even though I know it's probably not beneficial for me to do that. Um, but I
2: think it is, you know, what you just said, I think illustrates that as painful as it is to recognize that those we've admired and whose whose works we love are deeply flawed human beings. That in itself is, is a useful thing to know and to learn from, mm. despite how horrible it can be
1: <laughs> well, and how I'm,
2: disillusioning it can be.
1: I'm glad this has been such a rich conversation. I, I really did want to ask you that question because it very well could be that... The tendency to I, I i hate the I hate the term cancel culture, I hate it yeah uh, but there is a tendency to withhold forgiveness from people who have made really horrific missteps,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: and yet I think that that does stand that tendency that sort of zero tolerance tendency does stand in tension with the idea that authorial intent is not where the interesting parts of the conversation are.
2: And these are conversations we usually only have within academia. And I'm, right. I'm interested in seeing how this plays out now in the wider culture. And I think it does relate to this idea of, of canceling somebody. And what do we mean when we say we're canceling and mm-hmm. what kinds of, of, of dialogue is taking place, on a social media platform where there really is no room for nuance Mm -hmm. there's really no room for for the most part meaningful intense complicated dialogue about these issues Mm -hmm. and that's another whole you know conversation but um you know you you took us down this path i
1: know i I did there's so many (laughs) there's so many rich directions we could go um,
2: but going back to your point about the battle scene, you know, I've got this page open in, in my edition here, and you're on to something, if we want to go back to this idea of intent, it is interesting to look at how Martin doesn't shy away from just how horrific battles are, and how bloody they are, right. and just, you know, the, the opening up of bodies and wounds, and, you know, at one point Tyrion's entire nose is lopped off in battle, right. and, you know, Certainly, the the filmic version of Game of Thrones gives us a lot of gore and bloodshed, but not to the extent that you see it, especially with our heroes, you know, like Tyrion. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't see it to the extent that you see it in in the text.
1: Well, in addition to that, and this is maybe where the life of the text is more helpful to us, Tyrion acts heroically. I mean, Mm -hmm. this chapter, he's given an opportunity, probably for the first time in his life, to choose to act in a way that will not benefit him. Like politically it might benefit him for Catelyn to die. Mm-hmm. And yet he decides that he's going to, you know, fight and kill and, you know, chop logs that bleed, as he says.
2: <laughs> right.
1: And in in a way that sort of piques that sense of heroism in me. You know, it's like, yeah, here he is. He's he's you know, he's never held an axe before, but now he acquits himself pretty well with an axe. And and look, he's you know, he's uh, he's rescued the fair maiden. You know, there's some sort of deep, (laughs) deep down sense of like, uh, you know, heroism that's peaked.
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you this, Anthony, because I've read a couple of different interpretations of that scene where he saves Catelyn. And by the way, what an interesting bit of foreshadowing here, when Catelyn Stark stepped up behind the man who attacked her and opened his throat, right? I thought, ooh, we're going to see that again. Um, But a couple of the interpretations I've read is, one, you know, Tyrion's not really thinking. Of course, his first thought is, you know, let them have the bitch, as he he says. Mm -hmm. Welcome to her. Great. This is my way of not only getting rid of my captor, but Mm -hmm. a bit of revenge as well. But then, of course, he finds himself moving as you said, logs that bleed, right? And he goes in and he helps save her. Mm-hmm. Um, does he do it because he's a good person? That instinct kicks in. I'm not going to let somebody be butchered if I can do something to, to prevent it. Or is he still thinking in terms of self-interest, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, okay, if if Catelyn dies, I'm left out here in, in the wild. Um, how will I get to where I need to, to be? Mm-hmm. Um, how will I find shelter who will kind of help provide for me? Um, will I be left to the mercy of these men who probably will just kill me and move on? Mm-hmm. Right? So so what do you think maybe is his motivation there? Do you think maybe it's a bit of both?
1: So I'm so glad that you said this. So in my view, Tyrion has an inner voice that isn't quite the same as his public voice. Yeah. I mean, they overlap for sure. But for instance, in this chapter. You know, he's making this sort of revenge list. Right? That's that's the inner that's part of his inner voice. Um that he you know, he may or may not act on. He has this little part of him that like wants to jump out behind the rock and yell, Casterly Rock and like
2: Oh, I laughed so hard. Jump I- I into the fray of battle, right?
1: <laughs> But then he doesn't act on it. That that little inner voice he's able to say, mm, I'll think better. I'm going to think better of this situation. <laughs> he has yeah. the inner voice that, like you said, like let the bitch die or whatever. But then he doesn't act on that either. And to me, the way that I read that is I think, he's got an inner voice that's kind of an asshole. And... <laughs> And so do I. I mean, how many of us can claim that we don't have those kinds of dark thoughts from time to time? And then, of course, you know, having having any kind of moral character, you learn to sort of ignore that part of your, you know, inner asshole. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I think I mean, my my sense is that there is sort of this Venn diagram between Tyrion's inner asshole and sort of his the face that he shows to the world. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, like, could I give you an accurate reading of my own Venn diagram? I don't think I can. Yeah. Because sometimes I feel raw or tired and I snap. And then all of a sudden that that inner asshole is like out there in the world. <laughs> I've got to <laughs> deal with the consequences <laughs> of it. Right. So I don't know. I, I feel like uh, the other part of the inner voice thing is that sometimes it will come in and make sense of something you've done. So I think it's like Braun who says, "Well, now that you've tasted blood, you, you need a woman now." <laughs> right? And Tyrion says, "Well, I I'm willing if she is." And she and he gets these sort of men of war to laugh, right? Yeah. So it- he gets he gets them to laugh, and then his inner voice jumps in and says, "Ah, that's a start." Yeah. So it's like, okay, did he want? Did he just go for a laugh because he likes to make people laugh? And then the question is, after that, now that he's got them to laugh, now how do I use that for political leverage? Yeah. So that's
2: such a
1: good I point. think I think a lot of times Tyrion will act, and in the case of Catelyn, I think he does like this little. There's there's something about sort of what's the heroic thing to do? I'm going to act on that. But then once he's done that, that inner voice is absolutely going to reorganize his thoughts and say, okay, now how can I use this situation to my advantage? Because he is, you know, at his core, he is a survivor.
2: Yeah. I think that's such a good point. There, There is that kind of, uh, I don't want to say lapse because it makes it sound as if it's faulty somehow, but... There's that inner voice and then there is the action. And I think for Tyrion, most of the time, he is able to pause long enough between the Mm -hmm. two to recognize what is (laughs) the best course of action, not necessarily the right course of action, but the best Mm -hmm. course of action that will get him to where he needs to be. And it doesn't always happen that way for Tyrion there. I forget what passage I was reading the other night where um, it's not in this chapter, but he, He keeps saying something, and his inner voice is saying, you really should probably shut up right now, but he can't stop himself. He keeps saying it. Do you remember that section I'm talking about? So the inner voice is saying, slow down, Tyrion, but he just keeps going. But most of the time for Tyrion, you're right. I mean, how many times is he sitting in front of Tywin and longs to hurl his wine in Tywin's face? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't, right? right. He holds back, but he's thinking the entire time, I hate you. I loathe you. You're terrible.
1: That's right. But he always
2: usually speaks pragmatically. The other thing you mentioned, which I think is so interesting about this chapter, and we see so many hints of this, is he is so funny. There are so many times either in his inner voice where I just kept writing ha, mm-hmm. you know, in the margins, mm-hmm. or he says things that are meant to be humorous, but there's always that kind of edge behind them, Yeah. right? There's always that kind of deeper motive behind his humor, and so he has gotten very used to either using humor— as a way of calling out how he's being treated, right? Mm-hmm. The discrimination that he constantly faces. Um, two, to point out somebody else's flaws, right? It, it, Tyrion just has this this brutal truth. Right. Um, he just puts it all out there and he's able to do that because he's the first to tell the truth about himself, right? You can only mm-hmm. tell the truth to somebody else about themselves, if you're willing to do that for yourself. And so he does this with John, right? When he first right. meets John, sure. um, the, these conversations, he says, this is who you are. Guess what? This is who I am. You want to join the Night's Watch? Look who these people are. Right. Uh, this is what you've gotten yourself yeah, into. These Face are your it. new Accept brothers, it, right? He does this constantly, right? As a way of revealing these larger truths about other people and himself, But then he also, as you just said, Anthony, and again, you see all of this in this chapter, he also does it as a way of amassing power, Mm -hmm. right? Gaining an advantage. And so you're right. He says to Bron, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll take Catelyn after he says, you know, you need a woman. The minute the men laugh, he thinks, aha, right? If I can't win them over right now with gold, Mm -hmm. um, if I can't, you know." employ these other strategies i'm getting them to laugh that's right Uh, i'll I'll use that as a way of reeling them in and you see this especially in the subsequent chapters but it's that new kind of okay here's another survival technique Mm -hmm. um in this instance here's something else i can i can use Mm -hmm. and so he always has you know regardless of anything that's going on Part of it is just he, he reads, he knows things, right? He, he has spent his life pouring through books and interacting with people and learning what works and what doesn't. But he's also so smart because he knows how to adapt, you know, like that fish you were talking Mm -hmm, about. mm -hmm. He doesn't just rely on the same old things. Sometimes he does, but in this chapter, he's realizing, oh, here are a couple of other things I can use. Um, I'm pretty good at battle because they don't see me coming. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good at, you know, reeling in Braun and these other men by being one of the guys, mm-hmm. you know, by making a sexist joke. That's right. Um, it, it's so interesting to see how he just adapts and survives as he goes along.
1: There's one more thing about the inner voice that caught my attention. And that is early in the chapter, he's, you know, he's sort of lamenting the loss of this horse. Yes. And there's this little passing thought that maybe the horse has the better of the situation. Yeah. And it's sort of like one of these things, like you could read that as a joke that's meant to amuse him. You know, it could be he's telling himself a joke to pass the time, but we know that he will become suicidal in these later books. Yeah. And that sort of ideation will become a, a dominant part of the inner voice. Right. And so it's hard to, I don't know, I don't know if this is a little seed that maybe suicidal ideation is sort of part of that inner voice. But knowing where his character goes toward, I think it's maybe the beginning of dance, that inner asshole will will eventually take over because, yeah. he, because he's laid so low that he just lets that inner voice run amok, really.
2: Yes, I was thinking about this in terms of, you know, again, the chapter hints at these things that we will see later mm-hmm. and, you know, book Tyrion, I think it's, it's really after the, you know, the third book, that book Tyrion and show Tyrion really start to depart. And it it's not just that kind of, um, you know, suicidal ideation, which I think you're absolutely right. We, we, I think we do see an early hint of that here. Um, but it's just that that bitterness and and desire for vengeance. Mm. It, only if you're a book reader do you really get that from Tyrion. How dark mm. you know Tyrion gets. And I was struck with this the other night. You know, I, I mentioned earlier in our conversation about how it's funny um his his list of you know his, his enemies list. Right. I laughed out loud again when I you know read about him just sitting there and memorizing the names and thinking about how he they would be mm-hmm. handsomely rewarded someday but that's a hint at that darker nature that comes out later when i th- i think have you read i don't i don't maybe i should say spoiler alert i don't know how many uh, people listening to this will have read the little excerpt from winds of winter but we know that he is off to find daenerys right mm-hmm. toward the end of his story mm-hmm. arc and you can take anything out anthony going to say that you don't want me to say but
1: yeah no i i I, spoilers are welcomed on this
2: okay well what i was thinking about is how um you know he he sets off to find daenerys and if you're just a show watcher if you haven't read the books in the show it's depicted as he's looking for a better world you know he's looking for a better political system Mm -hmm. he's looking for um a savior you know he's looking for somebody who breaks the wheel Mm -hmm. who doesn't do things the way it's always been done and in the book version, we very much get the sense that actually, you know, his motivation is he wants to just go back to King's Landing and kill everyone. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he wants to go after those who have humiliated him, who have taunted him, who have treated him terribly, um, who have reduced him to what he is. You know, he's even angry at Jamie at that point. Um, he is looking for vengeance.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you you really get that kind of darker aspect to his nature um, not only in terms of his attitude and his demeanor and, and his that inner voice that leads us to that conclusion but in, in the very language that he uses and so it's going to be really interesting to see mm-hmm. where we go I, I think George at one point even described Tyrion as the villain of the story did he not and here we go back to author's intent right, right? Huh. are we meant to understand that Tyrion's our villain because George said it, that he is um, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I find it really interesting that we do get this early um, kind of nature of Tyrion, that kind of, you you definitely see him warring with this in the early books hmm. between, you know, his desire for vengeance, his desire to lash out at those who have um, been so cruel to him, warring with this nature of, well, I still want to do the right thing. And you see that in his, his rescue of cat, his first instinct. I think Understandably, you know, this woman who has captured right. him and who's accusing him of these things that he hasn't done, his first instinct is, you know what, let her die. Yeah. <laughs> but then he feels he he finds himself moving almost against his will. He finds his body moving mm-hmm. and and going in and, and coming to her aid. So you see both aspects of that, and I think you're quite right to point out maybe it's not even conscious, right? Yeah, it's just, he is that moment hmm. but we see both of that in Tyrion and that's what makes him such an interesting character he's so multi-layered
1: yes i mean i would even go so far as to say i've rarely read a character in a fiction that is as multi-layered as tyrion yeah um he i mean he's he's really quite a remarkable feat of literature and and then the question then there is that question about like, how do I deal with these villainous acts? I mean, there are, there are times when I think, Am I right to love this character as much as I do uh-huh. because I know what he's going to do to Shay? You know, it's yes. like.
2: And how often in a story do you see a character like Tyrion, right? The world is full of point of view characters like Jamie, right? right? Yeah. Until, until Jamie's arc changes. But how often do you see a character like Tyrion? who is not only a central, maybe the central part of the story, but we see the story from his point of view. Mm. And that's what drew me in really early on uh, with these books, is that we're seeing it from his point of view, as well as the point of view of many different characters. But, you know, especially Tyrion, uh, who is unlike any other character um, I, had, I had seen at that point. And, you know, we all are probably very familiar with you know, how dwarves are characterized, you know, in literature. M- many people are first introduced to people with dwarfism through fairy tales. Right. And they're the comical character. They're the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. You know, that's how most people come to their understanding. And, you know, Tyrion doesn't fit that mold. But it's he also does in He does certain,
1: in certain ways. Like, every now and it, again, like, Martin will, like, hint toward... Like I was reading um, Caroline Larrington's book "Winter Is Coming," and one of the things uh-huh. that she says about Tyrion is that if you look at this Norse mythology, you know certain so- sometimes dwarves will show cunning. Absolutely, that's Tyrion. Um, mm-hmm. So a sort of uh, ingenuity when it comes to craft. So he he's able to make a saddle for Bran. So that's part of his talent. Yeah. And then every now and again, uh, you'll see a, a dwarf in fantasy literature carry an axe. And, of course, he's given an <laughs> axe. In this. But every now so it's like George will every now and again tip his hat to these previous sort of typical depictions of dwarves in the medieval world. But it seems to me that he does that in service of some sort of later subversion of the trope. Yeah, Um, I think
2: that's very well put.
1: So I don't know. I found that And again, it's from
2: Tyrion's point of view, right? Why is Tyrion wielding an axe? Because he's in battle and has to survive. And and look at how he wields it. I I think you're absolutely right. I think there are intentional references to these very common tropes that we see again and again and again, but they're used in ways that are so different um, from what we've typically seen. And again, from the point of view of the actual character which is, is pretty unique, especially for the time he was writing.
1: Well, Jan, this has been lovely. I I, I love diving as deep um, into this story.
2: Oh, as um, do I. This is a treat.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. Um, well, here's what we'll do. We will absolutely have to revisit this conversation um, later in the narrative.
2: Yes, I would love that. If, Like I said jamie cersei really any character uh please count me in (laughs) uh especially the the jamie sections i just would love to uh continue our conversation this is like i said a great treat this is fun i don't have a lot of game of thrones fans in my household or my community (laughs) so i i rely on on people like yourself and (laughs) and this this great online community podcasts and all of these things to uh, to kind of feed my, my obsession here.
1: Glad to be of service.
2: <laughs> Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go.
0: Hang on. It is our time.
1: And now, Steve and I cover The Lion and the Rose. This is the famous purple wedding episode. So, that's going to dominate this conversation. But elsewhere in this episode, Mel and Shireen end up having that famous Faith conversation. And Tyrion tries to get Shay out of town. And Joffrey brings in the play of The War of Five Kings that includes the dwarf actors. And of course, we know what happens to Joffrey in the end. Here is comic Steve Osborne. (laughs) Steve he was just too beautiful to last. <laughs> <laughs> he died doing what he loves.
0: Grossing me out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just being a total shit to everybody. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: Uh yeah man I was uh I was not ready.
1: <laughs> last night uh <laughs> when you said I'm blowing past I'm going into <laughs> going to episode 2 I thought. Oh boy. <laughs> i had
0: no idea what i was getting into man
1: <laughs> and i couldn't say anything it's not like no, I could I know. Say. Well, so... well
0: it was it was kind of nice because uh, you know with the red wedding i knew the red wedding was a big deal right so i knew yeah. as it was coming that it was going to be a big deal i and so i was braced so this was great to just have like just a nice solid visceral like what the what now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah God, so gross because i'm like well maybe he's gonna be okay (laughs) and then i was like ah (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: he just yeah talk about a transformation in someone's face
0: yeah well and what's fascinating too is because i mean that episode was a relentless joffrey episode of just him being so like god and hate this guy you know oh my god how do you and then they just kill him and you're like whoa what
1: we've talked a lot about the way that they've structured these seasons right so this seems like an episode nine for right? sure
0: yeah i mean this is a big i mean it could be nine or ten right or like what i would say is this would be the nine ten would be whatever the aftermath is with Tyrion, mm-hmm. and then you would leave off with some sort of a cliffhanger for his fate right like-
1: well yeah so i think the idea is that okay We've got sort of a rule of three going on. Like everyone's expecting episode nine to be the big thing. Right. So to throw this at us, like episode two, that, I mean, right there, like you said, you weren't ready for it. Really. No one was ready for it. Even because when it was happening,
0: I wasn't right. Re- I wasn't thinking like, I'm like, I thought, okay, maybe he's just choking and, and, or maybe he is mildly poisoned and they're able to deal with it. Right. Like, I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And then now that like sets up this whole notion of like, oh well he's in danger and but now Well they
1: also set up this budding conflict between Joffrey and Jamie. Right. Where Joffrey's just totally ridiculing Jamie and Jamie's just taking it and you just know like that's your dad, dude. Right. Like, that's your dad. Not only is he your dad, but he could straight murder you. <laughs> right. Yeah, And so, so you're sort yeah. of like, that's building, and you're thinking, well, that's that's getting juicy. And yeah, so you're thinking nope. long term. Yeah, done. <laughs> nah, not at all. Not even a little all bit. All over. So, yeah, so tell me, you're, you know, I, I want to hear your, do, do you miss Joffrey? I know that you miss Joffrey.
0: I do. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't. miss looking at him, but but for all the things we just talked about, like Joffrey is is in many ways the necessary evil, right? I mean, the same way that Rob would have been perceived as the necessary good, um, Joffrey is the fly in the ointment. Like, it just complicates everything because that's one of the things that's the most fascinating about Joffrey is, you know, sure, he's impetuous, he's naive, he's homicidal, he's all these things, um, and he's the king. And that's what makes it so fascinating is because you have all these other better players. You mm-hmm. have the Tywins, you have the Janes, you have the Tyrians, uh, you have anybody, even Cersei for that matter, but they're all just, you're playing with, you know, as like an, in lost wet dynamite, you know, it could go off at any mm-hmm. time and then, and then you're beholden to it. Right. I mean, and that's the whole sequence is that nobody can do anything when he's up there just tormenting Tyrion and nobody likes it. Like, I mean, maybe Cersei, but like nobody really likes it because it's...
1: it's oh, it's totally uncomfortable. Well, for it's
0: uncomfortable everybody. and it's sending... It, the message it sends is not like... I mean, like Marjorie's trying to kind of rehabilitate the the position and the perception, right? And so if he's up there just being cruel and at a minimum childish, mm-hmm. uh, this is not a leader that, that worth following. And that's the whole thing she's trying to build, right? She's trying to build a following. More than just a leadership and name only, and so so this is undercutting all of that. And it was just relentless. His chopping up of the book, and then it's the whole cupbearer thing, and then he brings out the little play. Which, by the way, I mean you know you could do a whole spinoff on those guys. Uh, <laughs> and
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you this: we're not going to do this in the show, so you won't really get this. But in the books, Tyrion ends up with like. This traveling road show with this other little person, where he gets reduced to doing that sort of thing. Interesting. And the show never does that with as a result character. of what? Well, I can't tell you that. Oh, thing.
0: okay, okay.
1: But the show never goes that direction with Tyrion. Interesting. Um, and so he kind of, in the books, at least, he gets to see what his life would look like, you know, growing up without any prestige. Gotcha. All right. So before we move on, what was Heather's reaction? She's
0: similar to mine. I mean, she's just like, could we pan away from the face? <laughs> like I the guess. face. It was like
1: there was like a good like it felt like solid three hours in the
0: face. <laughs> yeah, it felt like an entire commercial for that face.
1: <laughs> uh, all right. So Tyrion picks up the the cup. He's clearly holding the cup. He was officially his cup bearer, yeah, pronounced this is, by Joffrey.
0: And I'm seeing this whole like setup, and this is where I get a little bit like, ah, guys.
1: Okay, all right. However, all right, so I, let's just call it out. Tyrion's the one guy who didn't do this, right? He's like yeah. the, the only person. Like everyone else there probably has a motive for killing Joffrey, except for maybe Cersei or whatever. Right. But you almost kind of feel like, like, you're really not sure what Cersei would be willing to do. Right, especially after she's, just,
0: she's having this whole breakdown in this episode.
1: This is one of those, like, whodunits. But you know who is not going to be the murderer is the first person that everyone suspects, right?
0: Right, and watching the whole thing go down, there was such a reluctance to give him a cup. Why would he... Right. You He would have jumped right into the situation had this been premeditated, and it would have to have been premeditated. That's the thing, right?
1: Yeah, but the thing is about this is that People don't really care about forensics in this world. That's fair. People care about like, well, who can we kill and How do not we, come closure. back on us?
0: It's closure, whether it's right or wrong. It's just move on to the next thing.
1: So let's talk about the possible suspects here. Um, but I,
0: I guess I have to go back to this, and this is where I'm going to have a little bit of a frustration
1: potential right,
0: with right. the show. Is that they were all there? Everybody's watching this thing go down. Mm -hmm. How could he have poisoned him? You know, I mean, it's and so, yeah, he may be the one that was just then being tormented, but like everybody's watching. It was happening Mm -hmm. right in. He didn't go off to get a cup. He didn't go off to get different wine. It, It was all happening right there.
1: Well, he's a demon monkey. Yeah, right?
0: and I guess that's that's the and thing. And so he's
1: probably, you know, he's probably paid some sort of magician from across the sea to, you know, he's probably had this thing planned for 14 years. Yeah. For the people in this world to believe that Tyrion did it, it's not going to take much.
0: Well, but that's the thing. I could see Cersei and I could see a few others, but like Tywin's face when he just seemed to be like, yeah, I guess it's him, was like very much like that to me seemed a little bit incongruous.
1: Okay, this, we haven't talked about Shay yet. However, there is this scene where Cersei thinks that she's caught, she's caught Tyrion's lover, right? Right. And he has to pretend that Cersei has the right prostitute. Right. And then when he's acting for Cersei's benefit, he says, you're going to pay for this. As soon as you think that something good is going to happen in your life, I'm going to snatch it from you or yeah, something like okay. that. So, because he's protecting Shay, he has basically pantomimed his motive, possible motives, to Cersei. And so now, you know, those words came out of his mouth. Yeah. And Cersei is always kind of suspected.
0: Well, that's the that's the, uh, the result of the life that they've wrought, right? I mean, that's you've always got to be on guard. You're always waiting for the other one to do the thing, because you were always waiting to do the thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay, let's talk about possible suspects here. So we know it's not... I mean, we know it's not Tyrion. Right. It's too, it'd be too obvious, and like you say, there's just no way he would, would do it. He's got um, his own stuff. I think we both agree that pro- it's probably not Cersei, right? I would agree. Tywin is not thrilled.
0: <laughs> well, and the thing is, is that the, the thing about Tywin is Tywin's a big-picture guy, and he has enough... He, I I firmly firmly believe he knows that Joffrey's not a Baratheon. Oh, you think so? I think so. I think I think Tywin.
1: He's <sighs> too smart not to know.
0: He's yeah, he's seen too much. He's been he knows his children too much. And
1: See, I think that sometimes I think he sometimes he's so focused on the legacy that he almost doesn't care who his children are or how they think. Like, he just cares about who they they should be. Well, I
0: get that. But so that's why I could get the idea that, like, okay, I'll keep up the impression that he's a Baratheon because I can't, because the legacy of the Lannisters is very important. So I'm willing to, at least on the outside, Mm -hmm. claim that this is a fraud. It's a hoax. He's really a Baratheon. But deep down, he could be looking at long term and go, it's just a matter of time. Just a matter of time before this information gets out. And when it gets out, then it completely unsettles uh, the whole throne situation. I I can't have it.
1: So you're yes or no on Tywin?
0: I'm saying I I would put him on the lower end of suspects, but he's certainly on the list.
1: Okay. Let's say imagine we're detectives. we got a bulletin board. Yeah. Tywin's Picture is on the bulletin board.
0: He's on the list of people to interrogate. We're not going to interrogate him as if he did it, as it. But we're going to interrogate him. We're going to butter him up to to get his knowledge and to see if he if we can get him to talk about strategy. Maybe he can reveal something.
1: All right. Let's talk about the Tyrells. Uh, either Lady Elena or Marjorie.
0: Okay. So this brings up a, before we get into that, I have to ask a question. They're married officially, but does she is is she now the queen or is there some sort of a rule about consummation?
1: I think that consummation is a really big deal.
0: Yeah. So that, that it, that's what I had. And at, we've
1: already established that by the fact that she never consummated with Renly. Right. Right.
0: And so that's where I got kind of like, well, what is the order of things now? Because we just had this whole very clear discussion with the prince telling her, former queen regent, former, like really driving home yeah, the point yeah. that she's lost her title. But then I'm like, well, I I don't know how that works. Is she is she back to being the queen region? Like, see, that's the thing from. A, a
1: I think it all depends on what the power brokers want, because if they want to set her aside, it'd be super easy to do that. If they want to decide that she's going to marry the next person in line, which is Joffrey's little brother, Tommen. Right. Now we haven't seen a lot of Tommen, but he's like this, he's supposed to be this roly-poly happy little guy. He
0: seemed relatively uh, upbeat during the wedding.
1: So, um <laughs> So you saw the actor who was playing Tommen in the wedding? Mhm. Did he look familiar to you? Uh yeah, who is that? Do you remember when the Karstarks ended up killing the two Lannister boys who were yeah. supposed to be Tywin's nephews in prison? Right. They just ended up bringing back one of those actors. Okay.
0: All right. I mean, this is the whole Dick York, Dick Sargent episode anyway, or season anyway.
1: <laughs> they just decided, yeah, he looks like a Lannister. We'll just bring him back and have him play this <laughs> new guy. Okay, so it could be that they decide, if they want to set Marjorie aside, it'd be pretty easy to do that. If they wanted to just say, okay, yeah, you can marry the, the younger brother when he's of age or whatever. We'll honor the alliance. Right, right, right. So that's possible. So the, So with so that, that's be... why
0: I sort of take Marjorie off the list. All right. Because yeah. it's not a if there's not a clear, okay, well, she's just now the queen, then I don't see what the advantage is because everything that I've seen from her is being a queen's a pretty big deal to her. That's that's her MO. And so the idea that she would she would risk murdering Joffrey prior to an ironclad uh stake at the throne doesn't mesh with me i'm not saying she's not okay. a suspect because <clears throat> i feel like her. this isn't... is gonna
1: seem a little bit uh out of left field here but sansa
0: uh Sansa's the one i said last night
1: you think it was her
0: i don't know that i well i don't necessarily
1: mm, you're gonna okay. put her higher on the bullet oh yeah
0: because saying. there is the moment where the cup she has the cup for a sec and I and just from a a directorial sequence, like you could look at it as a moment where she's sort of compassionate to Tyrion's endeavors and helps him out. But at the same time, she's spending some time with the the jester dude. Yeah, yeah. and he's like, let's let's bounce. So then he seems like a possible suspect. But then I'm wondering, is there something in that necklace?
1: Good eye, man. In the books, the necklace is a big deal. And it's sort of like really played up, like why is he giving her this necklace, and she's gonna wear the necklace in honor, and so maybe there's more to meet the eye with the necklace with the show. They don't really do that do as much with that. Okay. um now, I may be forgetting something later in the season. I know that the necklace is important, but I don't think it's sort of like "Aha, right, okay. All right, so Sansa's definitely – I mean, look, if anyone had a motive, it's Sansa, right? But the question is, does she have the gumption to do that sort of thing?
0: Right, and that's why – but that's the thing is where it's like, well, was there more to the – the fool and hers conversation that we didn't see. That's where I would put
1: well, he, her. Yeah, right. So he sneaks up and says, come with me if you want to live. Right. That seems kind of out of nowhere.
0: It's out right? of nowhere. He. It's as if he knows something was about to go down. So he becomes sort of like the obvious, right? I mean, in terms of maybe not for the crowd, but for us as viewers, I would think. Like, he becomes more obvious than, than anybody. Yeah, else. he's the only
1: one at the wedding with clearly ulterior motives.
0: Right. He look. Joffrey wanted to kill him. He's trying to. He, he basically is doing everything he can to try to like let Sansa know. Hey, look, it's you. You gave me my life back. But at the same time, this is his life. As long yeah. as Joffrey is king, this is his life. And it's kind of like it could go at any time. And while I'm here, I'm just here to be humiliated. Um, he could have potential access to things because he's part of the entertainment. You know, well, from a viewer perspective, I put him very high on the list. But overall, I kind of feel like.
1: Okay, I'm going to bring up one person that's not even in this episode. Littlefinger.
0: Okay, yeah, we haven't seen Littlefinger in a minute.
1: Haven't seen Littlefinger. We will see him soon. But, I mean, here we have a guy who his motives wouldn't be sort of like, I just can't stand Joffrey and he has to die because he's a monster. Littlefinger would only be doing it if he thought that there would be something to be gained. Right. So he, I mean he's he, it's not above him. He would certainly do something like this. Anyone else that should be on the bulletin board?
0: Um well, the prince.
1: Oh Oberyn. Yeah. Oberyn Martell.
0: Prince okay. Oberyn is he's here to complicate things.
1: Yeah, he's going to wreck shop.
0: I mean he has made it very clear that his he's got he has a debt to repay. Um, he
1: wants revenge specifically against the Lannisters. Right. And Death by Poison.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the poison the last time. And, and uh, you know, while that may not have been clear in the, the show, you know, having that discussion with you and I and knowing a little bit about that from the book now, it's like, well, I mean, this guy seems like he'd have access. It would seem like he's got motive and he's got means.
1: Now, earlier in the in the first season, we learned that stereotypically poison is a woman's weapon. hmm.
0: Yeah, but, but we've already established, uh, at least right now, that he's, you know, he's gender he's, he's, he gender bends, he's, he's a little, uh, yeah, so, so weird. I don't, he's already made it clear that he doesn't play by the same rules, right, and, and he's there to, to buck convention.
1: I feel like he's the kind of guy that says, he, he wants you to know, that I want it. revenge, I want to know that, I want you to know that I did it.
0: Right, now that, that, that I could see that.
1: Yeah, he doesn't even care about the game. Even so much so that he's just willing to tell Tyrion, like, "Yeah, I came here for revenge."
0: <laughs> yeah, man. The Tyrion's whole interact. I mean, like, Tyrion is so beat down this episode. Like, I, know. Nothing- I mean, every interaction he has is just like,
1: Ugh. "All right, let's." Well, okay, let's talk about Tyrion. Tyrion and Shay. Tyrion and Shay. Yeah.
0: Well, he's genuinely they- concerned now that that she's they- their relationship has been officially outed.
1: It's been outed, so, so they're both in danger. Well, and I she's think in it,
0: danger of being killed.
1: Yeah. And he, he may he's, not he's be in any d- more yeah.
0: danger other than just having to have her killed.
1: Or, you know, it could be something horrible, like he's forced to kill her. I mean, you don't know what Tywin's
0: capable of. Oh, exactly. Right? And then Cersei, if she's helping pull any of the strings.
1: Yeah. So the best thing for them to do is to run, I think. I think yeah. the second best thing for them to do is... For Tyrion to kind of, you know, say this is this is our plan. You're going to go hide. I'm going to meet you at a later date. I can't tell you when or whatever. But what he decides to do is like throw rocks at her, like she's a puppy or something like that. And I think that they're both too smart, and they both kind of see through what he's doing. Right. Like you don't. I know that you really love me. I know that you don't really believe the things that you're saying, and. This is all bullshit.
0: Well, and that's the thing, right? So he, given their interactions thus far, him just saying, look, your life is in danger. He knows she's not leaving. And I don't know if that's just her stubbornness or if it's because she's in love or whatever it is. So I think the element of him doing it, and like to your point, the, the fact that both of them see through it, the fact that she can see that this is what he's resorting to, even if she sees it as a ruse, suggests like, All right, maybe to do this, it would be to have my absolute best interest in mind and convince me this must really be a serious thing. And I feel like that's that's almost like a code language, so to speak, between the two of them. Well, she doesn't, and she's upset. She doesn't want to leave because of circumstance, not necessarily because of what he's saying specifically. And so, I mean, that's that's a major blow to him, right? I mean, that's well,
1: it seems to be the end of that. It seems to be the end of that stage of their relationship anyway.
0: Right. Right. And also just as a side note, I mean, what does this do to Sansa? She was already considered the daughter of a traitor. And now she's the wife of the guy who killed the king.
1: And she and she runs, right? So yeah. if if ever if you know, you look guilty if you run, that sort of thing. Uh so yeah. So she's got problems.
0: Because then it looks like, okay, well, maybe they conspired.
1: And at this point, you're thinking, oh, no, but Dontros will keep her safe. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this thing going on with uh, Jon Snow. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of on trial up north. Yeah. And... He's got some
0: swagger now, though.
1: Okay, good. I'm glad that you're noticing this because I think he was really sort of just disaffected youth before right but he's seen some things man he he's been in the backseat of a cadillac he killed corn half yeah he's seen some things
0: oh yeah exactly that's amazing how that'll happen here's a fun little fact right we never watch the uh opening sequence
1: whenever i watch the opening sequence i keep thinking i should ask steve if he's still like, and so
0: and so ye- uh the last episode i was like uh let's give this thing a look and yeah. Heather's like, well, this is helpful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. It's a big map.
0: Yeah. And I'm like,
1: yeah. And I want you to know that these, th- that it changes.
0: Okay. So that's, that was the question. I, she's like, do you think it's changing? I'm like, I, I don't know. We've been skipping it, but I'm guessing that it has because then she's like, well, what's dread for And I'm like, I don't know. And then I realize what dread for after mm-hmm. watching it. And I'm like, Oh, well that's where, you know, that's, that's where I think
1: I, I don't think know if Dreadworth's
0: been there the whole time or not. I couldn't tell you.
1: Yeah. I think that in the first couple seasons, it didn't change much. Like it may have added like Craster's keep gotcha. a little bit, a little bit on, but for the most part, it was all the same, but the further we get along in the show, it will change at times. Okay. Like I think for like, if a castle changes hands, they'll like change the flag on the castle or if well, the castle... has
0: Winterfell always been smoldering no yeah that's That's what i kind of figured i'm like i bet you that wasn't smoldering the
1: whole time and then you have to add stuff like marine like we have no idea where marine is uh, until this season or whatever yeah and i you know it gets you in the mood yeah uh, you
0: know that's the thing i'm a mood guy and so i think we're gonna be watching it now um
1: i think you're fully in man (laughs) i guess so if i'm watching the opening you are fully in
2: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: In my conversation with Jan, we talked about Tyrion's suicidal ideation. On this point, I'll read from what Aaron and I wrote in our book, Gods of Thrones. Previously, we've discussed Tyrion's belief that he's cursed by the gods. On this point, we write, regardless of whether Tyrion is really cursed, he starts to act like it. He descends into suicidal depression, fixating on the worst moments of his life. Tyrion escapes across the narrow sea, like Jonah from Jonah, and wonders if the storm is a punishment from the father above for kinslaying. There are a number of Jonah parallels here. The most striking are that Tyrion and Jonah are both suicidal. They both travel by boat, below deck, and they both attribute a storm to divine retribution. There are also several important differences between Tyrion and Jonah. We see no evidence of allegory. While in Illyrio's garden, Tyrion fixates on seven poisonous mushrooms. He pockets them, knowing that they would be lethal if eaten. The number seven is significant to him. He thinks the seven the gods of his birth religion, might be inviting him to end his life. This, of course, is from the first Tyrion chapter in Dance. And I bring that out because when we see Tyrion at his most exposed and vulnerable, he has a complicated theology. He's guilt-ridden over his murder of his own father and wonders on the boat whether his father might be sending the storm. He merges the idea of his own father with the archetypal father above, and while drunk, it's a pretty interesting and Freudian conflation between Father capital F and Father lowercase f. And that's all for this week.